while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. In 1979, after the Iranian Revolution, the American embassy in Iran was taken over by protesters, and 52 American diplomats were taken hostage and held in custody for over a year. However, a lesser known story is that six American diplomats had managed to escape from the embassy without being noticed. They weren't able to leave the country, but they remained in hiding in Tehran, the capital of Iran, for over two months. So two officials from the Canadian embassy uh, took them into their own homes at great personal risk as they tried to figure out what do we do next. Now, when the U.S. government learned that there were six American diplomats in hiding, the CIA began strategizing. How do we rescue these six diplomats? And so they started kicking around ideas for schemes, you know, schemes to, to set them free. So they said, well, we could issue them fake American journalist visas. They could pretend to be American journalists. But then they thought, well, but if they're caught, then that puts all the real American journalists in any dangerous part of the world in danger. Ah, we can't do that. They thought, well, maybe we could deliver bikes. Well, it's 300 miles from where they were to the border of the nearest country where they could be safe in Turkey. Or we thought maybe they could pretend to be English teachers, but there weren't any schools that were teaching English in Iran anymore. The international schools closed several months ago. So finally, the CIA agent, Tony Mendez, uh, proposed a plan, and he said, let's have them pretend to be a Canadian movie crew, scouting out locations for a sci-fi movie. I'll fly in as a Canadian film producer. I'll bring Canadian passports and cover identities for each of the six. We'll do some filming on site in, in the middle of the capital of Iran for a day, and then leave from the major international airport the next day. Now, anyone who first heard this idea was initially skeptical, right? The State Department officials were skeptical. The Hollywood contacts that he had were skeptical. And when he finally convinced them and flew over to Iran and shows up at the house of these six diplomats who've been in hiding for over two months, they're skeptical because now they have to follow this guy who they've never met and go with this crazy plan and they've never been actors, they've never been part of a film crew, and they have to learn it all very quickly and their lives are at stake if this whole plan goes badly. Well, to make a long story short, 
story. Uh, uh, you've heard of that. But the rescue plan was plausible precisely because it was so strange. No one would have expected such a thing. And yet, it actually worked. It's historically true. It's how they got out to safety from a very tense situation. Now, we just read a very strange story from the Gospel of Luke. A group of women went to pay their respects to their recently departed friend, Jesus, who had been executed two days earlier. When they get to the tomb, they find the tomb is empty, the body is gone, and two angels are sitting there proclaiming that he is risen from the dead. And later on in the chapter, it says they met him personally and physically. So I want us to ask two questions. First, do we have any reason to believe that this strange story actually happened back then? And second, if it really did happen back then, what difference would it make for us here today? So first, did this strange story really happen back then? Do we have any reason to believe that this is actually true? Well, uh, we aren't the first ones who might ask that question. When the women came to the tomb and found it empty, they didn't immediately conclude, of course, this is what we were expecting. Of course, Jesus is alive again. No, what does it say? Verse 4. Look down at verse 4. They were perplexed. And verse 5 says they were frightened. And then when they go and tell this story to the male apostles, Peter and the others, the guys were also skeptical. Verse 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They thought this is just, they must have been imagining, they must have been at the wrong place or something. So if you find it hard to believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead after being dead for three days, you're not alone. You know, people in the ancient world knew just as well as we do that when a person dies, their body normally decays, and they don't return to life in this world. And people in the ancient world knew that just as well as people in the modern world. You don't need modern science to teach you that when people die, they normally stay dead. And in Jesus' time and place, people had a variety of views about death and the afterlife. Some people thought death is just the end, period, end, and you're done and gone. Sadducees believe that, and uh, some, Greek, some Greek philosophers believe that. Others believe in the immortality of the soul, that your body decays, but your soul flies away to another world. And some Jews believed in the idea of the bodily resurrection, but what they believed was, at the end of time, God would come back and raise all the righteous people to life in new bodies again. So the Jews were really the only people who were expecting anybody to ever physically come back from the dead in any form. And they thought it would happen at the end of the world. Nobody was expecting this to happen to one guy in the middle of history. You see, when Jesus died, none of his followers were expecting him to come back to life three days later. So you might say, well, what convinced them that he had? Because, you know, if you read, you can read all the new, there's four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They all end with this story of the empty tomb resurrection. And if you read Paul's letters, Paul was another author, he wrote about that, and Peter's another author in the New Testament, he writes about the resurrection, and James is another author, and he writes about the resurrection. Every author in the New Testament, there's about nine or ten of them,
because he ran uh, to the tomb. He didn't walk, he ran. And in verse 24, later in the chapter, that indicates there's at least one other uh, apostle with him. Uh, the apostle John is mentioned in the Gospel of John. So, so he goes to the tomb and he finds it empty. Now, if Jesus' tomb wasn't really, you might say, well, okay, so they said the tomb is empty. Is that true? Well, if it wasn't true, anyone could have proved them wrong. Because Jesus was publicly executed just outside the city of Jerusalem, outside of a major city. He wasn't, he wasn't killed in the middle of nowhere and his body hidden. No, he was publicly executed outside of a major city. His body was laid in a recognizable tomb. It even says who the tomb belonged to. Uh, anyone, if, if Jesus' body was sitting there in the tomb, anyone could have produced it and disproved all these Christians who are running around saying that Jesus had rose from the dead. They could have said, wait a minute, roll the stone away. This is where he was buried. We all know where he was buried. And look, he's still there. End of story. But guess what? Nobody did that. Nobody ever did that. Nobody ever, even people who were arguing that Jesus was crazy or all kinds of other things, even people who were against Jesus, never disputed this fact that the tomb was empty. In fact, some of them, some of them said the disciples stole the body, which actually assumes that the tomb was empty. So they, everyone agreed the tomb was empty. So, well, then you might ask, well, is it possible that someone stole Jesus' body from the tomb or removed it for some reason or other? Now, Peter probably wondered this. He went to the tomb to make sure it was empty, like the women had said, but also he wanted to see if there was any evidence that someone might have removed the body. But what did he see? Look down at verse 12. There's a curious detail that we might miss if we read this quickly, but it's an important detail. Verse 12, he says, says stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and went home marked. Jesus was 
crucified. And by the way, there's, there's Roman historians who are not Christians who mention Jesus crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's, that's a historical fact that, again, even the non-Christian writers back then, the pagan Roman historians, acknowledged that. So no one disputed that. So in that case, what you have is a group of women and men who had just seen their leader publicly executed, shamefully executed. And somehow, in a short time, they concoct a plan to steal their leader's dead body, hide it where no one else could find it, and then invent a story that they all know is false. Namely, that he had risen from the dead. And then for the rest of their lives, they hold to this story and nobody ever cracks. Nobody ever says, oh yeah, we just made it up. Oh yeah, we were just speaking metaphorically. And some of them actually end up dying or being imprisoned for proclaiming that Jesus had been risen from, had resurrected from the dead. Because some of the people in power didn't like what Jesus stood for. So throughout human history, many people have given their lives for something that they believed to be true, even though it might not have been true. But very rarely will anyone willingly suffer or especially die for something that they know to be false. Right? If they made up this whole story, why would they suffer and die for it? And none of them ever recanted. None of them ever said, oh yeah, we just made it up. You know, conspiracies and cover-ups only last so long until somebody feels like this isn't worth it for me anymore. Or somebody slips and a detail comes out and you realize the story doesn't fit. Here's the thing. The Christian claim that Jesus rose bodily from the dead is not just a beautiful story that has no basis in history. It's not just wishful thinking that's helpful for people who need a crutch to lean on in life. The more you look at the details, it's the best explanation for the historical facts. And the resurrection of Jesus revolutionized the lives of his first followers. What had happened was so momentous that their lives would never be the same again. Imagine a prisoner. I'm just trying to compare their experience to something. Imagine a prisoner who has been condemned to life in prison, and he's been in prison for 30 years. That's his life, and that's all he has to look forward to. No, no possibility of parole. Imagine that one day, without any warning, the guard walks in, unlocks the door, and leads him out, and gives him street clothes, and says, you're a free man today. And he's standing outside the walls of the prison, and he's never thought this would happen. And he never imagined this would happen. And he does, his head is spinning. He doesn't even know, what am I going to do? But I'm free. I've got a whole new lease on life. I have all kinds of possibilities that have opened up that I never thought were possible. That's a little bit of like how Jesus' disciples might have felt that day when they saw that he was risen. Or imagine a woman who was blind ever since she was born. She's never seen the light of day. Perhaps she's learned to go about her life by feeling and touching, helped by friends and guide dogs, remembering how to get from one place to the next. But one day a doctor comes to town and using a previously unknown medical technique cures her of her blindness. And for the first time in her life, she steps outside and she 
sky in full color. She looks into people's faces who she has heard their voices for her whole lifetime, and now she can see them. And this new reality is so overwhelming, she can hardly put into words what it's like. You see, that's a little bit like what Jesus' disciples experienced. It's a mix of shock and awe and wonder and joy. You know, sometimes we hear stories of great rescues, like the CIA agent who, rec who, who rescued the six American diplomats. There's all kinds of great rescue stories, and we sort of hear them, and we marvel at them for a little while, and we think, wow, that's an amazing story, and boy, they were clever, and boy, they were courageous. But then, honestly, most of the time, what do we do? Two hours later, two days later, we just go on with our lives as usual. And why do we just go on with our lives as usual? Because we are not the people who, needed, who need to be rescued. We haven't been locked up in a house for the last two months not knowing if we'll ever see our homeland again. Right? We hear stories about great rescues and we think, that's great, that's beautiful. But we look at it from a distance. And it doesn't really change us on the inside. But what if we are the ones See, the Bible says that Jesus died and rose from the dead in order to rescue us. People like us, including us. The Bible says because of Jesus' resurrection, we can have hope for eternity and we can have hope for tomorrow. Consider these two things that Jesus' resurrection offers us, the difference that it makes for us today. Hope for eternity, hope for tomorrow. The Apostle Paul talks about hope for eternity in that reading. Jackie read for us from 1 Corinthians 15. He, Paul says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. You know, every one of us will die one day. Now, for some of us, that day might feel very far off. Right? Young, healthy, got a lot of things to look forward to in life. For others, we might be well aware that we've lived most of our earthly life, and we're looking back But sooner or later, death will come to us all. It's one stubborn reality that every human being will face at one point or another. And death means that our hopes and our dreams and our plans and our relationships will perish. Our bodies will decay and turn to dust. The people who knew us personally and remembered us will also die off. I mean, some of us might be so lucky as to find a place in the annals of history, but most of us, after a few hundred more years, Probably nobody who's still living will even remember us then. How do you deal with the reality of your mortality? You know, some people spend their lives trying to avoid thinking about it. Keep themselves busy, distract themselves, deflect the topic if it comes up in conversation, just, just push it off later, not now. Other people resort to wishful thinking about death. They imagine all kinds of pleasant things about the afterlife, but if you ask them, do you 
have any real reason to believe these things, the honest answer would have to be, no, I just want it to be that way. And guess what? Reality is hard. And reality is not a projection of our wishes in this life. Or why would we think it would be that way in the life to come? Reality is not always exact, just what we wish it would be. Other people try to find hope and meaning in this life only. Several years ago, I was listening to a professor from my college who was a very smart man, and he was talking about his philosophy of life. And he said, you know, this our life on earth is sort of like a little tiny bright spot in the midst of a really dark and impersonal and uncaring universe. He says, the universe is beautiful and it's vast and it's amazing, but it doesn't care about us. But he said, you know. Here's what we should try to do. We should try to add one more speck of light to the world. If we gain love, that makes a speck of light. If we gain insight, that's another speck of light. If we reduce suffering, if we help other people, if we're pushing back the darkness, but he admitted, he said, but in the end, the darkness is going to win. In the end, each of us will die, and eventually the human race will die off. The darkness will ultimately win. I remember listening to him and, and thinking, is that really all we have to hope for? A week and a half ago, uh, my grandmother died. Uh, she was 93. She had lived a long and fruitful life. She had followed Jesus for nearly eight decades since she was a teenager. And uh, she had been married for 42 years to my grandfather, and then she was widowed for 30 more years and lived a very impacted a ton of people. There were hundreds of people at her funeral. Uh, but over the last two years of her life, her health had declined, her memory had declined, her ability to travel had been great, gradually reduced, but her hope was not lost. Because she had hoped in Jesus throughout her life, and as she got approached the end of her life, her hope began to shift to, to focus on You know, even in her hardest moments, when she was most confused, when her memory was declining, she would often say, I want to go home. And sometimes she was confused. She was thinking about her childhood home or a home she had lived in at one point in her life many years ago. But sometimes she was speaking about her home with Jesus, her spiritual home. And I, when I visited her for the last time that I was able to about a month ago, I sang with her some of the hymns that we sung in our church growing up. And if you know anything about old hymns, a lot of them end, the last verse is often about death and resurrection and the hope of glory. And she would, she couldn't speak very loudly, but she would mouth the words along with me. See, my grandmother had hope in Jesus throughout this life and for eternity. And if Jesus really died and rose again, and if our lives are joined to his, then we too can have hope for eternity. That death will not be the end. But that just as Jesus was raised, that we, that he has prom promised, excuse me, that those who trust in him will be raised again as well. The Apostle Paul said, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might say, what exactly is Paul talking about when he says the sting of death is sin? What he means is that Jesus didn't just defeat physical death. Jesus also defeated the spiritual reality that separates us from God, the author of life. The Bible says, the Bible uses the word sin to talk about what separates us from a perfect and righteous and pure and good God. And sin is how we fall short, how we turn away from God, and how we ignore God. You know, sometimes we think it's okay to sort of ignore God as long as we treat other people well. But think about it if you're a parent. Imagine if one of your children completely ignored you and refused to acknowledge your presence for an entire year. And they acknowledged everyone else around them, their school teachers, their classmates, their friends, their coaches. But they acted like you were
Our hope on 